This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Thel Gillis, Senior Account Manager at Prius Intelli. Prius Intelli is a geospatial services company focused on high-resolution, high-quality aerial imagery. I'm excited today to get that 30,000-foot view at centimeter resolution. In case you didn't catch on to that, yes, that is a pun. This is your opportunity for everybody to take your pause and laugh. All right. Now, Thel, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Prius Intelli. Joe, thanks for that. Um, and, and I appreciate the 30,000 foot overview, but it'll be more like 5,000 feet because that's our AGL. <laughs> that's our above ground level that we like to fly at. So I had um, the fortunate ability to be in the oil and gas industry for 20 years with Williams and then kind of transitioned into some other supporting roles with Trimble Navigation and even Panasonic Toughbooks. Um, and then recently was able to transition and migrate into high-res imagery based on some of the acquisitions that Trimble had acquired and just some of the solutions that they provided to the marketplace. So it's been a long and varied career path in and around oil and gas and in and around the pipeline industry itself. That is, that's very interesting and a, a bit of a unique route going from Trimble, which I'm not sure if, if all the audience knows, I know Trimble from GPS measurements and pairing that with ArcGIS, but then to Tough Books, which it seems like the the theme here is outdoor hardware data collection, and now going into high resolution aerial imagery, now doing something similar. Can you give us a, a bit of a introduction to Prius Intelli and and your role with them? Sure. So interestingly enough, Prius Intelli in Latin actually means first to learn. And when the company was founded three years ago, we're actually based in Fort Worth. The intent was to be able to deliver high res imagery via RGB 
um, and some other uh, aerial solutions in a timely fashion and with immediate price discovery. So speed to market and providing value in, in real time and, and getting that back into the client base, those owner operators and or if it was ranching, if it was environmental and deliver them the best quality of data in the shortest period of time. Okay. Very, very cool. So very high resolution and very quick data collection and getting it to the client. And so, so far we, we, we've been talking about aerial imagery. I want to make sure that, that we understand and that the audience has a baseline is, I guess with with the the type of data we're talking about, is it just aerial imagery? And just in case somebody doesn't know, what is aerial imagery? And are there other types of data that that you collect? Sure. So let's take a step back. I mean, everybody's familiar with Google, right? Everyone can go to Google and take a look at a location anywhere in the world or anywhere in the United States. There are advantages and there's disadvantages. The federal restriction that is placed on Google, as well as any of our NATO allies, they can only deliver 30 centimeter accuracy. With an aerial platform, because we can actually fly at different resolutions, we can get down to two and a half centimeters, we can deliver imagery uh, at five, at seven and a half, at 10 and 15, okay? So there's a security component why satellite imagery and why Google Earth imagery are limited to that 30 centimeter capability. And so that's a federal requirement. Um, the challenge you're having as well with satellite is because of the ellipsis, right? The Northwest South orientation, you're going to never have two images that can be stitched together simultaneously because it's collected at a different time. It's collected based on weather patterns, based on storms, based on any kind of environmental issues. Whereas an aerial platform, we can get below the cloud layer and then we can deliver it based on whatever resolution that the client or the customer base is looking for. Okay. So, so what we're talking about here are like when we're in Google Maps, when we're looking at, we click the imagery button, they're basically just, I guess to, to put it simply, it sounds like these are pictures. That's what it looks like or aerial pictures of the ground. And it sounds like what you're saying, satellite imagery can vary in resolution. And, and really, if we're, if we're trying to go to Google Maps, we're getting a, a, um, a filtered or, or low resolution viewpoint compared to what we could be getting if we were Correct. going out and using the highest resolution possible. Right. Now, the last thing to keep in mind about Google is that in a lot of instances, their imagery is only as current as 2015. Um, and I always talk about the value of imagery and how it diminishes over time. So if we have a pipeline or an owner-operator that's relying on imagery that's eight years old, you know as well as I do that there's a lot that occur with construction, with development, with changes in the, in the land itself, um, so having a current view and keeping your imagery up to date for either a center line or a baseline or even a right away, um, you'll be able to see 
encroachments and erosion and geohazards as they occur um, with the long, you know, along the right of way. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think we, we can all realize and see that value in, in as real time data as possible. And, and I think that's where kind of everybody is pushing for the idea of real time data in, in the subsurface and, and the value of it here right. at the surface as well. Just a, a quick tangent. Why is the data in, say, Google Maps only as as new as 2015? Again, so how they collect and when they when they're able to collect certain locations within the United States, it just depends on that that ground based application that they're doing. Because you've seen the cars drive by with all the configurations on top, and or they're relying on satellite imagery as well. So you're housing and storing a tremendous amount of data and it just depends on when and if they want to update it and how current it would possibly be. I think that is, it's, it's interesting to think about the, that data lag associated with satellite imagery as, as one of those key almost challenges or, or limiting factors with satellite imagery. And now I want to talk more about Prius and Tele, and and just in case, do you, do people refer to Prius and Tele as PI ever, or is that yeah I, yeah for the most part they can, but um, we're we're known by PI and or Prius and Tele. Okay, okay. So in case anybody's just jumping in and they want to know, it's Prius and Tele or PI. So with with PI, you have a an airplane on as part of the logo. So what exactly does PI do? And, and you collect satellite imagery. You've talked about being able to vary the resolution and where you collect it. Can you explain a little bit more of the process and, and really who is, what is Priest and Telly? Sure. So the, um, how the business model got started was they actually, we're looking at a large opportunity up in the Permian Basin just because of the development that's going on in West Texas. And so with all the changes taking place up there and the explosion of, of new development and, and the changing of, of ownership of a lot of properties and as much oil and gas is being produced and shipped out of that from gathering transmission down to the marketplace for processing and refinery, they saw an immediate niche to be able to start flying for a lot of those development companies. So the, the midstream side, right? Um, in addition, the business model then kind of migrated over to real estate, largely for a lot of the Texas ranches. And I'm talking about ranches that are 100,000 acres, okay? Oh, wow. um, those challenges that those ranchers had being able to get a, a viewpoint from their land to determine where their livestock is, what their game trails look like. And if somebody wanted to put a stock tank in, then be able to get an elevation model and a stream network to figure out where's the best place to put in a natural stock tank. Okay. Um, So we started with oil and gas on the midstream side. We kind of migrated a little bit into the, um, uh, ranching and real estate side. And then we actually have now moved over into environmental as a concern as well. And I'll tie this back to the West Texas ranches. You've got legacy production and exploration that's gone out there for a century. 
And now landowners are realizing that, wow, this pump jack has been leaking oil on my land for two decades. And so with remediation, they can go back and they can actually get the land cleaned up and back to the environment that it was supposed to be prior to all the exploration and production. So we see environmental capabilities and we still pursue the, the midstream and the, uh, the large ranching capability. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. Everything that you're saying there, I can see the value just from the efficiency of, say, building a pipeline and knowing where to build it to make it most efficient. Or the stock tank almost sounds like it is a, it is a very, you need as high resolution data as possible because anybody who's been to West Texas, it's pretty flat. So actually knowing the lowest elevation and where you want natural water recharge and collection, that's not just going out and walking on your 100,000 acres. Right. And and you bring up two interesting points. Um, We actually did a project brief for a rancher, and it was called Water for Horses, and they had 1,000 acres. They were actually to pull water out of the Brazos, but because of the drought back in 2011, by 2022, they started limiting the amount of water that could be pulled out of the Brazos to support this livestock. So again, we flew this, we did all the elevation models, the terrain models, the um, stream networks, the slope, and gave the rancher. And this is where he determined to put in the best location to support his livestock. The midstream side, you're talking about an owner-operator that needs to put a 1,000-mile pipeline in, and it was going to actually go through 1,400 tracks. So 1,400 landowners, and, and you have to go through this compliance with them as well. So they evaluated the best route, and we gave them the aerial imagery to be able to determine that. So to be able to deliver that in a timely fashion and at the resolution that they want, it saves them from having to go send somebody out into a remote location and then ultimately try to record all that data. So it becomes labor-intensive, and you mitigate that process for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what about – since? You're doing a lot of this upfront work, helping people plan out things like pipelines and stock tanks and, and all of that, I would say, is, is kind of the, the early stage design criteria for a project. What about the, right now, methane mitigation and, and finding leaks are a very, a very big topic right now because we want to reduce those leaks and reduce the environmental impacts as much as possible. Correct. Is there is there any utilization of aerial imagery for for methane monitoring or is that something that really can't be done? No, your your point's well taken. It is being done right now. So there are methane providers that are out there that are flying aerial solutions um, and, and again, all of them are trying to get down to what's an acceptable release from, from either the EPA's determination. They say that no release is acceptable, mm-hmm. right? FEMSA is saying, well, you know, there's got to be some kind of middle ground. And so if the two of these entities could get together and figure out what's acceptable or not, then everybody can pretty much start adhering to this. There's a lot of, of ground detection that's being done, but this is very labor intensive as well, because if it's a long linear pipeline, then these guys have to walk with these handheld sniffers. From an aerial platform, 
you can cover a 260-mile gathering system in probably 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes, right? Maybe hour and 15 minutes, hour and 30 minutes, you know. And and so these long linear projects are more efficient from an aerial platform. We are in the stages of final testing our solution. So we will have something to offer to the marketplace in, in near term. So we're not quite there yet. But eventually, we're believing and hoping that this thing is going to be a game changer once we release it. Okay. Yeah, that's exciting. And I think that there's... So, I see the value in these big, large projects, 200-some-odd miles or or larger 1,400-mile-long pipelines or 1,400 tracks crossing over all of those. And... And you, what I've noticed is you're highlighting linear, and that was one of my one of my questions. If we're thinking about something like a well pad, or say a, a something that's more of like a 200 or 400 acre tract of mm-hmm. of a farm field, basically. Sure. Yep. To me, that is something. If you want to get super high resolution, my first thought is drones. Where where's the difference here and how, how can you differentiate between drone surveys versus, versus aerial imagery from, from these fixed wing aircrafts? Yep. So drones have a place and they're extremely valuable. Um, You have some restrictions. They are only allowed to fly at 400 feet elevation, right? So they have to stay at 400 feet. They're limited by payload. They're limited by duration. So typically a battery depending on the type of sensor or camera that it's, it's carrying, you're going to get 20 to 45 minutes of flight time. It's great if you're trying to utilize that inside the fence, but then you also have a restriction of line of sight. So it cannot be outside a mile of view, right? So you better be pretty flat and not have trees and, and vegetation that kind of, you know, encumber that, that line of sight. So, there's a place for there's a place for drone as long as you're inside the fence. But for long linear projects, it's a challenge. Now, we and I'll give you an example. We'll fly a three thousand acre site for a solar project, right? And we can typically collect that in in under an hour and a half. Um, we have a mechanism to determine the price based on that three thousand acre collection. And I'll give you an example. So in Louisiana. Um, to collect 3,000 acres at 10 centimeters is going to be probably about $2,300. If I was looking at collecting the same 3,000 acres up in the Bakken, up in North Dakota, the cost is a little over $3,000. So you're only talking about a $1,000 difference. My mechanism actually gives that immediate price transparency to the client and or the project manager. And so the mobilization cost to, based on that, it, it's not a big delta. And it's and so we are trying to deliver the value, the speed and the accuracy of what they're looking for. And we, we provide this mechanism for them to be able to see immediate price transparency. So there's no hidden agenda from our side. So yeah. we'll go down, you know, to a large square mile footprint or we'll go down to acres. So it's just based on the, the size of the, the area of interest at AOI. Okay. With, with something like that, I'm just curious with the idea of mobilization, not having a, having a, a relatively small price differential there 
makes uh-huh. me makes me wonder where where are these planes coming from that you're collecting your data with? So do you have a a fleet that's based in your headquarters in Fort Worth or or how does we, that work? We do. Yeah, so we have FBO access. So we have we have aircraft based in Fort Worth. We have some up in Midland, Odessa. We had an aircraft in Denver, and we've got areas um, staging out of the Midwest, so the Columbus area. So we've got you know protected assets that we own and operate, and they're they're hangered, and then we get them airborne based on project specific. Okay. So what about the one? One important part here is that we're talking about fixed-wing aircrafts running on presumably some type of, of fossil fuel. And if we're comparing that to something like a drone or a satellite, those, if we're looking at the, the, the baseline of what is being generated as far as emissions while that data is being collected... So not looking at life cycle analysis, because then then we have to talk about rockets and everything. But let's just look at when the data is being collected. I would think that there is a a um, I would think that it would be a hard argument to make that fixed wing aircrafts would be better for the environment. In that if you have a drone. You've got batteries, you're recharging the batteries, and you could presumably do that with low-cost renewable energy. But I guess what what do you say when people ask that question? Right. So, again, we'll try to minimize the carbon footprint because we'll put in a flight plan, we'll fly the area of interest, that AOI, We'll collect the data and then and then we'll get back on the ground. If you're going to dispatch a drone, you actually have to make sure you've got permission to the area and access to that AOI, that area of interest. And then you've got several crew members and several trucks that are all creating another footprint to get out to the location as well. So it's it's a trade-off. Um, if the value is if we're flying for methane leak detection, then we're actually providing value in trying to be able to allow that owner operator to reduce their carbon footprint and to have their product not escape into the environment. So th- there's the value in, in the aerial platform from that perspective, again, because we can do long linear projects instead of just very short one hop isolated areas. And we can even go remote yeah. Yeah. I think that that's actually a really good point that some areas you're not going to be able to get to with, with a drone and, and on typical road systems. And then depending on, I guess, I don't know how many, how many trucks or cars you need to get a, a drone, a drone survey crew out there. But essentially if it's a big, long, long pipeline, you're essentially just going to have to drive the whole pipeline if you have to keep it, keep the drone Correct. in line of sight. So, Correct. yeah, at that point there, there is a legitimate question of what is the environmental value if you, if you're either flying a plane or driving one or two cars Correct. and flying a drone. What I, I am, I want to ask one more technical question with the surveying and the resolution with 
with your flight plans, you can vary your elevation. And you said with a drone, you, you kind of are, you, you have a maximum of 400 feet. Correct. I would, I would think that the closer you are to the earth, the higher resolution you can get. Is there something backwards with my thinking there and the value? So the, um, the camera is still capable of, of collecting from a drone. And, and again, you're probably using a 35 millimeter sensor. Um, and depending on what kind of pixel resolutions that those are, those are being collected at, we're actually using large format cameras that can actually get down to, when I talk about that two and a half centimeters, that means each pixel is, is two and a half centimeters. And if you had to do a horizontal calculation based on that one pixel, you're now talking about three inch accuracy. And, and again, we're flying at an efficient altitude and speed. So whether they're wanting two and a half centimeter, which you pretty much read the license plate off of a truck at 5,000 feet AGL, or if they're simply happy with 15 centimeter, which would be half of what Google and satellite can provide. It still allows you to take a look at that infrastructure on the ground. So um, again, not, not knowing the type of sensors that drone operators are typically using, it, it's going to be very close, if not similar. However, I think from, from a fixed wing platform, you're going to get a different, different options and different variables of what, what kind of accuracy and resolution you're looking for. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's good to, to understand because typically, I mean, for us, we have our eyes and the further away we are from something, typically you can't see it as well. <laughs> so it's, Correct. it's always, it's helpful to see and hear and understand how and why you can be higher up but still have very good, very high resolution accuracy. Do you have any, any case studies that, that you like to highlight whenever anybody's talking about, Oh, well, when have you used this and, and what kind of value did this bring to the client or value this brought in general? Yeah, so, and I can mention Brazos Midstream as an example. So, again, when you're talking about the size of their system and where it's located and how remote some of that access is, from an aerial platform, they don't necessarily have to dispatch a crew to go take a look at a critical area or if they wanted updated imagery. So, for Brazos Midstream, it really was about the labor pool that they had and, and kind of not so much the aging workforce but just the labor pool or being able to get them to a remote location when you can do it more timely and more cost-effective from an aerial platform. Whitewater, Midstream, they absolutely used um, uh, the aerial capability to determine, like I said, those 1,400 different tracks that they were going to have to have to pursue and go through to put that new pipeline system in. Um we did the environmental piece um, with the land, uh, the, the landowner in Texas based on, you know, the 30,000 acres that he had um, for that, that oil remediation. And then you actually brought up another case in point when you talked about the well pads. So for a large ENP, 
we're flying over 40,000 well pads in the Permian Basin alone, and that will probably be completed by the end of this year. What they're doing is they're using that information for putting electricity into every one of those well pad sites, all right? So in terms of how that data is being used across their horizontal planning and engineering and land and right-of-way and integrity management, all those different departments within within that E&P group are using that data on a daily basis. So every week that we provide them new imagery, it's going across the entire horizontal for planning purposes and for development. Wow. Yeah, and, and I think each of those has a clear economic clear economic benefit but then also that environmental benefit of 40,000 well pads just imagine if you could electrify all of those and Correct. how much reduction in either diesel or natural gas that you could then have that's yep. that's yep. significant so i think that i think it's it's clear what the value is here on fixed wing aircrafts and and the the satellite imagery and the the image aerial imagery that you can collect with it one last question before we switch topics a little bit is it from your platform right now it sounds like it is only uh aerial imagery are there other data that you can collect or that you can relatively easily i guess hook up to your your airplanes yeah exactly and so one other solution that we provide is lidar right which is light ranging and detection so it is a sensor and it has an integrated camera that will tie into it as well so as we're collecting lidar you can actually take this data and you can create um a surface model a train model um, and, and it's fully metric and it actually will go into AutoCAD or into an engineering platform where they can do more planning and deeper analysis. If, if an area is prone to erosion or landslide, it's not so much that the infrastructure is already three feet underground. They need to know how much earth is moved from, from above. So they always have to have this depth of cover. And if in Colorado or Wyoming and, and with the snow melt and even with Appalachia, if you have a known area where a geohazard exists, that owner operator is always going to know how much cover above that asset has moved based on a landslide. And or if you just think about the snowfall and the melt from the Rockies and in Colorado on a regular basis, um, even up into the Sierra Pacific. Right. So it's always an issue for the for the Pacific Northwest and and for the Rockies. So LIDAR is another service offering. Um, our RGB, and I didn't talk about the near-infrared capability. So we can actually have a fourth band on the sensor, which actually can do near-infrared imagery. And basically, that's looking at the health and the vegetation management, either for crops and or for forestry. So that's the only time that you'd ever use near-infrared in that fourth band. So RGB is basically what you and I see. It's red, green, and blue. And that would be looking at a television tube that you get that spectrum. So that's how we're able to get the imagery and the quality and, and that coverage that we do um, and, and what we're providing. So that's all RGB stands for. But then there's a fourth band, which gives you that near infrared. Okay. And what about other other types of data beyond the LIDAR and the, the RGB and near infrared, things like um, 
I guess things like direct methane, the sniffers that you were talking about, see a lot of those on drones or magnetics or gravity. Is there the possibility to put those on fixed wing aircrafts? Is that something? Absolutely. Yeah, no. And that's our solution that we will have a fixed wing platform that will be able to determine a, a per kilogram hour release. And we're, we're actually developing that technology out right now. So there are other companies that already have that. Um, again, to the extent of what, you know, their, their releases that they're detecting, I, I, I don't have the answer for that. I do know that satellite is limited, um, largely in part because these things are at like 69,000 nautical miles out in a geosynchronous orbit. They have to detect a plume that can, is like in excess of 450 kilograms per hour. Joe, that looked like a cloud, okay, <laughs> in, in the size of being able to give you a multispectral. But then think about the limit of the clarity, okay, and then think about that satellite making that north-south ellipsis. And so, again, you're limited on the time that they can collect that, the next day that they can collect it, and then the size of the plume itself. So yeah. uh, satellite will get there. It, it's it's going to be years before that's accomplished. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like that, the, the thing I keep hearing are super emitters. And it sounds like that's right. really, it's going to highlight where you should send a fixed wing aircraft to really go and find the point source see if there's multiple point sources and and then find really what needs to be solved. Right. So that methane technology still uses a, la- a laser. So you have a, a laser that's actually flying perpendicular to the pipeline, to the right-of-way, to the facility. And so that laser is shooting down and looking for a molecule spectrum and looking for that plume. So it's a multispectral camera. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. Well, Fel, thank you for all this information. I think that now is a good time to switch over to my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So right now, um, I'm I'm actually looking at something called Selling the Invisible. And and the author of that is a guy by the name of Harry Harry, uh, Brockwith, right? And he actually talks about focusing on the customer experience. He talks about um, understanding the challenges and, and just being able to provide effective solutions, right? But again, it's about listening to what your customer, what keeps them up at three o'clock in the morning, right? What are their biggest challenges? And so if we're a solution provider, then the value in being able to understand what their challenges are and be able to deliver that, then yeah, this is a great read. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a great one. I'm going to have to add that one to the, the ever growing list of books to read. So the next question, how do we get to net zero? So that's going to take time. I think every operator, every owner operator is, is it feels the compulsion to be able to, not let their product be released because anytime that they do have a super emitter, that's money that's going out of their system. Right. And so again, with, with the regulatory aspect of, of some of the things in the speed that they're being asked to perform and provide all of this, I don't know if that's necessarily realistic right now. They're trying to get to that, but 
with new technology and being able to enable them to understand where those leaks are taking place and be able to provide them hard data, not only from a, a spectrum of, of what the molecules and, and, and a multispectral image as well, and give them that data, then they can go down and figure out how to, how to shore up their system accordingly as needed. Yep. All right. And now the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. Um, let's see. So knowing a little bit about your background in thermal energy, right? Yep. Geothermal. Geothermal. Um, how much, how much is that? Are we capable of being able to incorporate in, in, in the United States in terms of what, what do we have for geothermal that's in use? Yeah. That is a great question, and I think it's an ever-changing answer. So right now we have a little over three gigawatts of geothermal energy that's installed on the grid as a as a and I always I always forget the size of the U.S. grid, but I want to say that works out to about about. 0.1 to half a percent of the total grid install capacity. So it's it's pretty small, admittedly. But that's just the electricity generation part. Where we can get, assuming technology development and continued growth of opportunities and of industry investment and and expedited permitting pipelines and and favorable policy the goal or what seems like a realistic number is is potentially as high as 60 gigawatts of okay. geothermal power and that will will end up assuming all the other growth rates that could get up to anywhere from 10 to 20% of the US installed electricity capacity now there's a very important part here that when people focus on electricity they completely miss this part Heating and cooling is one of the largest uses of energy that the U.S. has and really that the world has. A lot of there is a good portion of that that is high, high temperature industrial heating processes. These are things like 500 Fahrenheit up to 1500 Fahrenheit. Making steel is one of those processes. Those are things that are going to be much harder. Those are these hard to abate areas. When we talk about decarbonization, those are areas that, that geothermal is going to have minimal, there's not a clear pathway to how geothermal helps to abate those areas. But when we're talking about commercial properties, residential properties, large, I'm going to call them campuses, like university campuses and large campuses like like Amazon warehouses or or the Amazon headquarters, those are areas that geothermal could have an impact today. You could either put in deep direct use wells and just be pulling out heat, or you could set up geothermal heat pump systems and different configurations to provide a, a majority of the heating and cooling for those buildings. And that sure. would that would have a very significant impact getting on the order of 
potentially 40 or 50% of that specific sector's energy use, which is, which is a significant amount of the energy use that we currently have. So that one, I'm a little less, less, um, I have less hard numbers on just how big that opportunity is, but combine the direct use heating and cooling with the electricity. I think that there's a, a significant geothermal opportunity in the U S and, and that same opportunity is worldwide. Right. Yeah. And so I, I had the opportunity to go to Iceland, right. In, in a previous life. Um, and I saw something recently and you probably know this, they have the most efficient use of geothermal energy of any country, um, in, in existence right now. And I, I was phenomenal to see how much and the plants that behind that, that, that technology and the geothermal that they're using. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they are, so I, I did my master's in Iceland, which was a, a, it was a great experience and definitely gave me the opportunity to see what it's like in terms of how you, how you live in a, on a grid that is, more or less, I think the grid itself is is ninety nine percent renewable energy, and then heating and cooling is like ninety percent renewable energy, just because they're yeah. they do have some remote farms that just aren't on the grid, so they have right. to use natural gas for heating. But it's it is it's amazing that if you have the right resources and set it up in a way that you are looking long-term and holistically, you can have basically everything you need through renewable energy and, and you don't see a significant change in your way of life. For me, I, I had to go and turn on the radiator and that's how I would get heat as opposed to going and hitting a button. Mm -hmm. And they are, they are in a, in an ideal geographic setting in that they don't need a, they don't need uh, air conditioning. You just open your windows in the summer. Right. But it is a, I think that is one of the, that would be the one thing that we really need to think about is how do you provide that, that air conditioning, which could, which can be geothermal heat pumps. Mm-hmm. So you can provide that same cooling, still using the same methodologies. It's just a matter of thinking holistically, because even though I was in a, a four-story building while I was there, all of us are on the same, the same district or building heating system. So we each had our radiators outside. Everything was, um, they had interbedded heat pump or heating lines. So during the winter, the walkways to the parking lot were all clear of snow and even wow. the parking lot itself, there was a, a section that was clear of snow. So you, it, as long as you're thinking about it and you you develop the system holistically, I think it's a, a great opportunity. It's just- We'll I'll have to trade stories about Iceland sometime. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Fel, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, Joe, look, this was a, a fantastic experience. I appreciate the opportunity and, and the time that you spent today, right? And, and then even inviting us to, 
to do this. Um, so look forward to it. And um, I wish you continued success with other other podcasts. And, and again, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Thel. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way that you can get some from us. Go to the show notes, find the one-question survey, fill it out, and if you do, then we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is ets at OGGN.com. If I'm not answering you, because I haven't been getting emails lately, you can also start sending them to my, my just, well, just find me on LinkedIn if you can't get through the emails. Um, email or LinkedIn is just Joe Batier find me on there. Now, until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.